0: This is a Sport Australia podcast production. It's an absolute pleasure to be sitting alongside one of the great Australian sports broadcasters. To many, his voice is the soundtrack of Australia's greatest triumphs and failures on cricket grounds here and all over the world. In almost half a century of broadcasting with the ABC, he is synonymous with the Australian summer. And now he is the 19th recipient of the Sport Australia Lifetime Achievement Award for Sports Journalism. We're here, we've been welcomed into his lovely home here in Sydney's eastern suburbs, along with his budgies, his pet budgies, Jim Maxwell, congratulations. I'm um, very um, sort of surprised, overwhelmed, and
1: and, uh, all of the things that happen when uh, uh, something like this occurs. So it's Marjorie and Albert, by the way, over there, who are making the noise in the background, that might add something to the conversation as we go. But, um, well, thank you very much for uh, the, the honour and the recognition. And there's a, a wonderful list of uh, sporting people involved in this over the last 19, 20 years. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great honour to be uh, told of this award. Thank you.
0: It isn't your first award, uh, clearly, Jim, and it, and it won't be your last. Um, how were you told? How did it come about, the, this news?
1: Yes, it was a phone call from Steve Monteghetti and uh, we had a very pleasant chat about everything under the sun and then he told me that uh, I was the recipient of this prestigious award.
0: Okay, 48 years behind the microphone, Jim. Over 300 test matches not out. Uh, Did the young Jim Maxwell ever dream that all of this was possible? He had a
1: dream, but maybe it was a fantasy in those days. Uh, When I was at school... I had an idea, an inkling that being involved somehow in the game of cricket other than playing because I wasn't good enough to be playing at that uh, top level um, was perhaps achievable. I was writing a cricket magazine at school uh, and uh, I had quizzes and crosswords. I was also a bookmaker but that's another career that I I didn't embark on. Um, And uh, from there... Even before I left school, I was applying for a job in the ABC as a trainee. And funnily enough, the person who got that job was also at my school um, and had done his uh, degree at university, a very good all-round sportsman and a lovely fellow who taught me a lot about broadcasting, uh, Peter Mears. So that was the first crack I had at it. And uh, and it went on from there at various intervals in the next few years before eventually I got in the front door.
0: Yeah, you, you, you first signed as a cadet in 1973 at the ABC, but it, it wasn't all smooth sailing early on, was it? I think you, you got rejected a couple of times, was that right?
1: Well, 1967, uh, there was a, a um, optimistic shot in the dark. Uh, I hadn't even done the higher school certificate, but uh, I thought it was worth having a crack. And then I went to uni, and I had another go in 1969. And then uh, I, I worked in uh, life assurance for a while in the uh, the brand new superannuation business that it was all about. And then um, I decided because Tom Spencer, who was working in the same place, played first grade for Manly, said, "Why don't you come on the old Collegians tour to England in 1972?" And I did, and uh, it was through that experience and coming back home, that my mother had advised me when I returned, uh, penniless at the end of spending all my dough there, that, uh, oh, I got this cutting out of the paper, that job you were looking for in the ABC's come up again. And that was in September 1972. So it was, the process started again, and six months later after auditions and whatever, I'm, I ended up with the job.
0: And what was it that actually inspired you in the first place to to pursue a career in broadcasting?
1: Cricket commentary, listening to Alan McGilvray. Um, When I was young, particularly those Ashes series, 61 a bit more, 1964, I used to listen to the cricket because by then I developed uh, a keen interest in playing the game and following it. I used to have um, uh, stuff stuck all over the bedroom wall It was a combination of all the newspapers that I could find where I get some photos and scorecards, Uh, cricket and motor racing. I had a lot of motor racing stuff on the wall. I probably had a few other things, but we won't worry about that. But uh, (laughs) certainly a lot of cricket. And uh, McGillivray's voice was unique. There was only one McGilvray. And the thing I loved about listening to him talk about the game was that he told you what was happening? All the other guys were colourful, uh, they were lyrical and poetic and and whatever, but they didn't give you the nitty gritty. And McGilvray always did that, and that was the uh, that was the the formative early influence, in as it turned out, my broadcasting career I was listening to McGilvray's silvery voice, confidential style. Uh, and it had a lasting impact. I, I had no idea when I was 14, 15 that uh, I'd be sitting alongside him and sitting behind and listening to him. That was how I learnt more about cricket broadcasting than uh, with anyone else.
0: Was it him that shaped the way that you... your your approach to cricket commentary? No doubt about it. Um, he, um,
1: he, he, didn't, he didn't give advice... Uh, very easily, very freely, but every now and then he did offer you a crumb and uh, one of them was a uh, copy technique, make your own style. So that's why I used to sit there and watch the game through his eyes and follow the way that he described the action. Because cricket, unlike a lot of other well fast-moving sports, gives you pause for reflection um, when you, you've got these rapid fast identification sports, you've got to be on the hammer. Cricket, you can just sit back and, and relax in between and talk to your kindred spirit next door or mull on what was going on in the crowd or, or somewhere else. So it gives you a lot of opportunity uh, to use language and to talk about things other than cricket, the more it goes. It wasn't that in the early days, you had to concentrate and be disciplined and that was drummed into you, that to uh, give the score, describe the field, very formal. And that was the race style and it was very, very effective. Uh, and he had a, a lot of people listening. As he used to say, uh, a lot of people tell me that they love listening to the cricket even though they don't know a damn thing about the game because it's just a friend on the radio which is
0: the delightful intimacy of radio. So it has been a career in, in, in which has spanned the World Series cricket split, uh, the coming of professionalism for cricket. There's been Rebel tours, T20 cricket's come along. You've seen the, the complete transformation of the game in in your time in watching it and covering it. How have you seen the evolution of commentary over that same period? Well, you always like to think that things
1: improve. And I think for the listeners... I think what they're hearing now uh, is a, a lot more uh, enjoyable than my memory of it back in, in in those years when it was was pretty much inside the church you know it was strictly on the game as it was happening and that's how we were taught I th- I think perhaps in keeping with the way we lead our lives and uh, enjoy our social discourse, it's loosened up a lot. It's become more conversational. And hopefully we haven't got too far away from the essentials of giving the score on the scoreboard. And I don't, I don't think, uh, as a rule, we have on, on, on the radio. Um, so I think it's changed for the best. The game's changed too. The players are more athletic and prepared than they were. The game's generally more entertaining. Uh, not just the T20 stuff, the frolics, uh, but test cricket is more combative and challenging and good to watch than perhaps it was in, in my young days when people were reluctant to take a risk and sat back a bit and waited for something to occur. So I think the, the style of commentary has moved with the reshaping of the game. The game has evolved. And let's face it, there are very few sports that are as diverse, as varied as cricket. When you look through Test Match Cricket, One Day Cricket, T20, T10s around there, there are all sorts of different styles and looks and moods to the game of cricket that very few other sports uh,
0: can replicate. So um, that's another reason
1: I think cricket's so good.
0: There is a lot of variety, but are there rules that, you've sort of stuck to uh, throughout your career and that you would sort of preach to any, I guess, young uh, broadcaster coming through the ranks at the moment?
1: Around the, the essential element of enjoying yourself, because if, if you're enjoying yourself and you're involved in the game, that will come across hopefully in such a positive way for the listener that they'll want to keep listening to you. Uh, I think you need to have some sense of anticipation of events to keep people interested in what's going on when it gets a bit quiet, as as cricket can, because it has all these moods. Um, but I, I think es- essentially, you know, the respect for the game, for the people who are playing. Um, but the big thing to remember, it is a game. It is a game. So whenever things get a little bit serious on a particular topic, uh, you always have to come back to that. And that's the good thing about talking to someone who goes off on a tangent on an an issue in the game alongside you, the next ball will bring you back and you just keep moving on. So that's how you sort of control, do your little bit of editorial in terms of the game. But that's part of recognising the fact uh, that there is an audience out there. Now, who's listening? They're listening in England, yes, in Australia. Where's the audience? So talk to your audience. And remember that there are a lot of people out there who are coming and going. So don't forget the most essential thing, the score. Please, don't forget on radio to give the score. It's the one thing that really gets up my goat when I'm listening to other people and when I'm in the car or somewhere else. But every now and then they, they lapse into a discussion about this or that um, and get away from what's going on in the middle and don't give the score. So, uh, yeah, that's my sort of reflection without
0: going too hard on it uh, for all cricket commentators. Uh, You you have also written a stack of cricket books, uh, but only one of those could really be considered the Bible uh, of the Australian summer, and that is the ABC Cricket Magazine. Was that your biggest passion project outside of the commentary? Well, I, I used to buy it, of course,
1: when I was young, two and six, whatever it cost back in those days and uh, Alan McGilvray was the the editor after uh, Johnny Moyes and you also need to remember that this is a magazine that started in the 1930s around the synthetic broadcasts as a guide to the broadcast so it developed evolved from that into what it's become uh, and it's probably the longest running cricket publication in Australia so it's got some history and tradition and there are a lot of collectors out there so I was doing bits and pieces for McGilvray when I first joined the ABC and then eventually he passed the baton on and I was lucky enough to pick it up um, back in the 80s and uh, the, the idea really from there on has, has been to try and introduce a, a bit more quality writing in the publication but stick to the basics of uh, having enough statistics in there and pen portraits, the field. That's the one permanent thing, the field placing that's been there forever, we've stuck with that. So, um, you know, uh, the quality of the production of the magazine, it just keeps improving. And I'm very grateful to the ABC and those that have come on board from various organisations outside the ABC to uh, edit and, and publish it, uh, that it's survived. Because it's pretty hard, uh, as a lot of people out there would know, for uh, magazines like that to survive in a,
0: in a market where everyone's online. Well, Jim, you've also had the pleasure of working alongside many great cricketers and commentators all over the world. Is there anyone that you've particularly enjoyed working with? Well, Peter, the late Peter Roebuck,
1: uh, enjoyed his company enormously. Uh, I, was, I was involved with a few other colleagues in getting him on the ABC many years ago, and he he brought some dimension and knowledge, intellect, uh, to cricket broadcasting that we hadn't had before. And the combination at that time of Peter Roebuck and Kerry O'Keefe's uh, quick wit, observational humour, I think made it one of the most in- enjoyable periods for me, if not for those who are listening, uh, that the ABC has, has put out on, on the radio. So... Those two would stand out. And um, on the other, other side, I, I've got to say, uh, although uh, he does polarise the audience, Geoffrey Boycott's been a, a lot of fun uh, to broadcast with. And um, with Michael Vaughan and, and then Vic Marks, Mike Sylvie going back. We've had a lot of fun in that Test Match special box with uh, those expert commentators around, uh, obviously, Jonathan Agnew Henry Blofeld, Chris Martin, Jenkins, a lot of a, a very, very good broadcasters. And, and uh, I, probably, I probably learnt more about how to relax as a cricket commentator by working with them, going back to Brian Johnson in the 80s uh, than with, a, with anyone else.
0: You have witnessed all of the highs and lows of Australian cricket um, over those years. Is, is it got to, has it got to the point now where it's impossible for you to pick your most memorable moment? In the box?
1: It's interesting you think back on what Australia has achieved and it's achieved an awful lot uh, and it's won, been very successful most of the time through all forms of the game but funnily enough uh, it's the close games they've lost that seem to stick in the memory. Uh, games like Edgbeston, uh in 2005 when but for a, a, a whisker and a glove down the leg side and the rest of it with Michael Kasparovic, uh, they probably would have won that game. But as it turned out, it was a very important, significant trigger moment in the history of the Ashes uh, because with England winning it and then winning the the Ashes, it put some new life back into the Ashes series with Australia having been uh, so dominant for, for so long. So that game stands out. And um, there are a, a number, of, number of other very good games of cricket. Like, uh, as a further example, because Brian Lara is probably the greatest batsman that uh, I've seen uh, when he uh, got the winning runs in that game in Barbados back in 1999 and they won by one wicket. Uh, another game Australia could have won and lost. Uh yes, there's, there's been a lot of those up over the years, including a, a couple of ties that uh, were memorable as well. Uh, but uh, just watching the quality, the style of Australian cricket through that period, out of the 90s into the 2000s, uh, that was the time to be enjoying Australia's success and uh, the 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 quality of test match cricket as we've not seen um before because of uh, uh, the superb bowling to a large extent of Warren and McGrath no matter what Australia did with the bat and most of the time they did enough with the bat
0: i think you've done very well to pull out those uh, those test matches from everything that you've seen but you you have also commented, uh, commentated on some other sports, uh, Rugby Union, Rugby League, yep. golf, hockey. Mm-hmm. What would be your second choice behind cricket if you were to start your career again today? That's very tough. I can tell you one of the most enjoyable
1: matches, performances I've ever seen and been part of was Australia winning the gold medal uh, in 1996... The Australian hockey rules, the women's team, and Alison Annan's performance um, with the the hockey team, and that was a stunning effort, that gold medal. So that that sticks in the mind as much as uh, seeing Australia re- recover um, from a, a huge deficit in a rugby union test out of the football stadium against the All Blacks when Jana Jana Loman was playing. Um, Nothing sticks quite as strongly in the mind, though, as calling club rugby on television, particularly down the road here with Eastern Suburbs, the home team, as it were. And probably the the only time that I've been able to get a plug-in for a sponsor without uh, being in front of the Senate's Estimates Committee. Um, Yalumba were the sponsor for Eastern Suburbs, the late Greg Pullen. Lovely fellow. He used to put a bottle of um, signature or something on the table for us to enjoy during the match. I and mean, they were very cold afternoons. You needed some medicine. So it was important to have. And I thought to myself on one of these occasions, how on earth do I get a plug-in for your without making it bleeding obvious that uh, it's, it's a commercial? So uh, we had this play down the right-hand side or whatever it was. And I said, the ball's gone out on the far side, and Bartrop, he's out there, uh, and he's taking the pass, and he's going to Yolumba in for a try. No one said a thing. Uh, and, uh, well, Greg Pullen was very happy, and Yolumba's support for Eastern Suburbs uh, was uh, reinforced. <laughs>
0: you mentioned the uh, Olympic Games and uh, you have called th- at three Olympic Games actually or called yeah. three Olympic Games yeah um, but the most recent one that you called was Rio in uh, 2016 and and that's where life uh, took a dramatic turn for you didn't it Jim
1: well it, uh, it did yes luckily I'm here today and chatting away but it what it, uh, well, could have been different um, but uh, it, it was quite strange uh, um We were working very strange hours in order to to be on top of the time difference with Rio. And we were doing it from most of it from Redfern. although we did have a couple of broadcasters in in Rio. Alistair Nicholson and Quentin Hull were over there. And I was introducing this yachting segment um, with my friend Peter Shipway, who's a very famous Australian uh, yachtsman. And as I was about to introduce him, my voice just went... Uh, I lost it completely and Tim Gable who was in the, the studio uh, immediately recognised, even though he wasn't a doctor, that uh, I'd had a stroke and called it. He called the stroke as I had it and um, so yeah, that that wasn't uh, a great moment and the pandemic swept whipped me off to uh, the hospital and I have to say... Uh, from from that moment on uh, I really wouldn't have made the recovery to where I am now without the support of uh, my wife Jen who has been outstanding she's uh, been with me on a lot of trips uh, work and pleasure and and, and just uh, the way she has uh, looked after me and um, you know shown the sort of love you have in a, a relationship has been outstanding I've been so fortunate so that's been a big part of it all. And re- remembering, if we go back a few years to when we were married, it happened at the Sydney Cricket Ground. So we've kept everything in perspective over these years. Did you ever doubt uh, your ability to make a full return to the commentary box? Oh, yes. Yes. I Well, in the early stages of it, I was struggling a bit with my speech and I've still got the legacy of a, a, a bit of a shaky... Uh, right side and I can't hit a golf ball properly at the moment so yeah, that that needs a a bit of work but look um, as they say always always look on the bright side it could have been a lot worse a lot worse so I'm I'm very grateful that I haven't lost my voice and that I have been able to recover and do uh, what um, I've been doing for such a long time I mean uh, as um, Jen says um, well
0: it's a stroke that keeps on giving. You've now even called a Boxing Day test match from your lounge room here, probably that seat uh, that you're yes. sitting in. Um, but that wasn't due to your health or anything that you did. That was, that was due to COVID-19 restrictions mm-hmm. preventing you from, uh, from travelling to Melbourne. Would that be up there with one of the strangest uh, moments of your career? Yes, it was certainly detached and uh, remote. It, it wasn't
1: as good as being there. Nor was perhaps being at Redfern where we did a remote call of that thrilling test match that India played and and won so well in Brisbane recently. But, look, in all these things, um, and perhaps the experience of being in the subcontinent where to lose uh, patience is to lose the battle, as has been said by a number of other people. So you adjust. You just have to adjust. Whatever you are confronted with,
0: Just adjust and get on with it. That's fantastic advice. Uh, What what do you feel has been the the secret behind your longevity? The fact that the
1: ABC has has stuck with me as much as I've stuck with them, I suppose, over these years. Uh, And uh, I've had the opportunity to do what I've enjoyed and it seems as though other people have enjoyed it too. Uh, So, yeah... um, There's something a a little tenacious about it all, but a kind of fulfilment, a sense of enjoyment, and the fact that uh, 99%, it seems, of those who are listening are are enjoying it has uh, sustained me, and the more so having had uh, this stroke and, and recovering from it. So just the support of so many people either in a commentary box the management level of the ABC and the BBC. But as essentially, at the end of the day, it's the people who are listening. That's um, the best feedback you can get. It's from the bloke who walks across the road in the middle of nowhere, and it's happened to me, fortunately, a few times. It said, I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed listening to the cricket from England. And it's moments like that uh, that make you realise that... Um, what you're doing is significant and, to a lot of people, very important. So um, I'm lucky to have been that messenger for so long. Uh, And I suppose as as long as I've I've still got the voice that uh, I've got at the moment, I might be allowed to continue to do it.
0: I was going to ask, uh, how long can you keep doing it, Jim? Who knows? How
1: long's a piece of string and all of that? I think it's the one thing about doing cricket uh, that you can endure uh, for a a bit more than fast-moving sports. I noticed, and I haven't done a a game of rugby or rugby league, for that matter, for for some time, for a few years, Um, but you need sharp identification and and a a quick brain to do that stuff. I'm not sure whether I could get away with it because all broadcasters who are listening to this will know that there's an element of bluff in what you do so uh, uh, yeah and and maybe as McGilvray said uh, I, I'm not quoting him directly here but I'll paraphrase him he said it's amazing um, uh, the baloney you can get away with on the radio so <laughs> if it's all baloney well there are a lot of people listening to it so uh, uh, the, the, the you know, the, there must be some sort of substance to the baloney I guess and um, you just got to keep sticking, sticking your neck out. Or as I've said to my friends, you know that you are in control of what you are doing if you can put your foot in your mouth and then realise how to take it
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> that's really good. So, Jim, a few cricket questions to finish off, if I may, without notice. Is this a quiz? It's a quiz. <laughs> Who is the greatest player you've ever seen?
1: Shane Warne, no doubt. Uh, Warne has done more to uh, influence the game of cricket than any other Australian cricketer, if not world cricketer, since Bradman. Has been extraordinary. The most extraordinary talent uh, I think we've we've s- seen in this era uh, with his ability to rip those leggies and have the variety and the personality um, to command the stage. And he's not only been a great bowler, but great theatre. And I think he's uh, added more to the spectacle of cricket than anyone else in the last 20 or 30 years.
0: There've been a number of very successful Australian captains, who's the best of them? That's a very tough question
1: um, because I remember Richie Beno from my youth and he was an inspirational force. So is Ian Chappell. Um, Mark Taylor's probably up there close to the the top. You need the the ability to uh, have the confidence of those around you, for them to believe in you, and you need to have the tactical nous. And uh, I think Mark
0: embraced all of that. The scariest bowler you've ever seen?
1: Well, when I was at school it was a kid called Nigel Agonia who came from uh, Papua New Guinea and um, he frightened the hell out of everyone because there were no helmets in those days and he was bloody fast. That's a personal experience but uh, sitting back in the commentary box and watching, um, mm, that's a very good question. I'd say a combination, if I put two on the table, Jeff Thompson, because no one could see where the ball was coming from with his javelin-like action. And Patrick Patterson at his best was ferocious, ferocious, but there have been plenty of fast bowlers who have frightened the tripe out of batsmen. But uh, I reckon Tomo, in his peak for the two years before he got injured, would have to be the fastest and most frightening bowler the game has seen.
0: You will have witnessed hundreds of thousands of innings um, by any number of batsmen across the globe. Is there one of all that really stands out?
1: The one that sticks in my mind um, because of its significance in the course of the series was Sachin Tendulkar in Chennai against... Shane Warne, and uh, he got out for uh, I think a duck in the first innings. Caught it slip by Taylor. In the second innings, he took on Warne and out of the rough. And there was a bit of rough too. I remember, remember me. He hit this six over mid wicket, and he stamped his authority on the game and on Warne from there on in this series. And it was a, a a brilliant brilliant innings, and it made a a huge difference to the course of uh, that that series. So that stands out, but goodness, (laughs) there have been plenty of others. Plenty of others. And um, Ricky Ponting's performance in the final of the World Cup in uh, South Africa in 2003 is another that uh, stands out as a a glittering example, certainly in, in one day cricket, if not all cricket, of a batsman so dominating the opposition that uh, it helped chalk up a significant victory for Australia.
0: What about your favourite cricket ground? Uh, I'd, I'd always
1: come back to the SCG yeah, because I've, I've watched uh, and done commentary. I mean, actually even played on the ground, for, fortunately enough, once or twice at a slightly lower level than the Stars, but... Uh, The thing with the SCG is that unlike any other ground in Australia, uh, you have the members and the, the ladies' stands and in the members' stand you've got those two dressing rooms. Now, those dressing rooms are hallowed places. You can go in there not just as an Australian player but as Joe Blow if you're able to on a tour or whatever and take a seat where... W. G. Grace sat at one end of the pavilion, or Don Bradman at the other. There's no other cricket ground in Australia that has that uh, special historical significance that the SCG has. So that's why, to me, it is the the, the number one ground in Australia, probably the world. But Lords Lords is certainly special too. But now the SCG that's the home of cricket
0: and This is probably going to be the hardest one to answer for you, but who is the best cricket commentator?
1: Alive or dead, as the the, uh, riposte to that goes. Well, McGilvray uh, was the best on radio and Richie Benno was the best on television. I mean, after that, there are a lot of very good commentators. My colleague from England, Jonathan Agnew, and we're very fortunate in the ABC to have a a number of excellent commentators. And... um, yeah, I I think it's it's a bit hard to define. And the person whose company I've, I've enjoyed an, enormously when we've had the chance to work together is Harsha Bogli from India, who, as an all-rounder, uh, is without without peer. Whether he's talking about the game or the influence of the game on our society, uh, Harsha's number one. Um, and you know. And the, In the same breath, I talked about Roebuck and O'Keefe and my old pal Mike Coward, wonderful person to have talking about the game of cricket with his passionate knowledge of the game. So it's a strong list. And uh, at the the same time as I say that, I think uh, without doubt the best all-round sports commentator who was excellent on the radio and it's just as good uh, on TV, is my old pal from Melbourne, Tim Lane.
0: Last question for you, Jim. Why is cricket better on the radio than it is on television?
1: Because it's kind of seamless on radio, right? And you don't have to be concentrating on a screen to follow it. And you can enjoy the lyricism of the commentator's and description of the game. And that's more and more the case in this country, it seems, with people in the middle of summer who are, who are out and about in a car, on a harvester, in a truck on the beach. They need the radio. And it's very soothing, gratifying and quite intimate too to have this person talking to you about the unfolding drama of an unscripted drama that's taking place. So it's just so much more fun than, than TV, which is uh, Brian Johnson said years ago, television commentary, there's a bus coming down the road. What am I going to say? Oh, there's a bus coming down the road. So <laughs> that's why radio is so good. It takes you to a place that you, you, you're not at, so to speak. <laughs>
0: Well Jim Maxwell, congratulations on being the latest recipient of the Sport Australia Lifetime Achievement Award in Sports Journalism and thanks for welcoming us today into your lovely home. It's been a real honour. Well thank you for listening and
1: uh, I say that to to you Michael and to everyone and uh, I hope that you enjoy the continuation of listening to Cricket on the Radio, one of the unique sounds in the world.